And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I hope you enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at a couple of episodes of the classic Tokusatsu Kyodai hero show Ultraman. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be taking a look at Pacific Rim Tales from the Drift, which is the miniseries from Legendary Comics. And we're going to be staying in the comic realm because we're also going to be taking a look at Marvel Comics Godzilla number 17, which starts a new storyline in that series. But before we get to that, we've got a little bit of news. Sticking with the Pacific Rim theme, Pacific Rim Uprising is in theaters March 23rd. Some late showings that Thursday the 22nd that I've seen. I'm very much excited for this film. I've uh, I've avoided pretty much all of the later trailers and featurettes that have been out there. I know SciFiJapan.com has done a real good job of kind of uh, curating all of the different B-rolls and featurettes that are out there. I haven't watched any of them. I'm trying to go in. As, uh, as blank as possible to this film and really just enjoy it. Hoping to get to see it opening weekend. Not sure if I will. Uh, obviously, if I do see it, you'll, you'll hear about it here on the show. So uh, look forward to that. Uh, another of our giant monster movies coming to theaters this year is Rampage. Now, Rampage is actually moving up a week in release. So now it is going to be released wide here in the U.S. on April 13th. Now, this is a response to... Uh, kind of the 800-pound gorilla of summer movies this year, which is Avengers Infinity War, it moved up uh, its release by one week to April 27th. So in order to maintain that two-week gap, uh, they have moved uh, Rampage up as well. So uh, set your calendars to April 13th, which is rapidly coming up in order to watch uh, The Rock and George and Ralph and Lizzie on the big screen. So uh, hat tip to Newsarama, which was the first place I saw that little item. In Not Safe for Wallet news, we've got some news about new X-Plus figures that are being uh, solicited now. The, the headliners for me, and in fact for quite a lot of people that I've seen online, are new versions of Sanda and Gyra. That's right, you can live out all of your War of the Gargantua fantasies with these large-scale X-Plus figures. Now, the Shonen Rick exclusive version, now this is the online exclusive version to certain Shonen Rick uh, qualified retailers from... Uh, X Plus, the, the Shonen Rick version is both of them together in one set with alternate arms so that they can be grappling with each other because the normal arms have them kind of standing, whereas this one they can be grappling together. Uh, so that's very cool. I have the original version of the Gargantulas from X Plus and uh, they are very nice, really impressive on the shelf. And the thing about the Gargantulas, they don't have tails, so relatively easy compared to a Godzilla to find a spot for them. Uh, speaking of Godzilla, the X Plus's favorite sculptors line, uh, which has um, specific sculptures, sculptors taking, um, you know, giving their take on their favorite 
uh, giant monsters. The, they're doing a Godzilla 2001, which is the GMK Godzilla, uh, being sculpted by Shinsuke Niwa, which is uh, st- from Studio Monster Maker 28. Uh, very cool. Um, not super stylized, but not straight sort of sculpt of GMK Godzilla. So it's it's really, I, I like it. If Again, these are, like I said, these are not safe for wallets, so they're a little pricey for my blood, but they are very cool stuff and they are extremely tempting. The Shonen Rick version, in addition to being just a cool sculpture of one of the uh, the best modern Godzillas, also has LED light-up dorsal fins. And that's something you never knew you wanted it till you see it, and now you can't live without it. Um, these are available through any of the many retailers which can get Shonen Rick exclusives. So if you just do a search for X plus Shonen Rick, you'll be able to find them. Um, uh, there, there's a few out there and, uh, the gargantuas individually go for 121 a piece, about, uh, 250 approximately for the set. And, um, the sculptor's choice, or excuse me, favorite sculptors, uh, Godzilla is going for about 152 and a hat tip to sci-fi Japan for this information. All right. Do you have any news about, uh, giant monsters, giant robots, any of this side of stuff we cover in destruction directive? Why don't you head and go ahead and send it to me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and we'll report it here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and then we will be right back with Pacific Rim Tales from the Drift, right here on Earth Destruction Directive. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time. And then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough so it's better to just set it up okay it it really doesn't work well so i checked uh i checked my uh Mm -hmm. my it definitely built build me for the hotel for all three of us join back to the bins every week for goodness solomon grundy hate voiceovers all right we are back here on earth destruction directive Pacific Rim Tales from the Drift was released by Legendary Comics starting in November of 2016 and running for four issues. Uh, The story is by Travis Beecham. The writer is Joshua Filikov. Illustrator is Marcos Mars. Colorist is Marcelo Maiolo. The letterer is Troy Piteri. And the editor is Robert Napton. And we actually keep the same creative team for all four issues. So what we're going to do is I'm going to run through each issue and give a summary and then do the notes. So we'll do this in, in four parts. So we're going to start with the first issue, which uh, there are no individual issue titles, so we'll just call this uh, part one. And our story goes something like this. Three years after K-Day, the Jaeger Tasset Ronin, piloted by husband and wife duo Duck and Kaori Jessup, battle the Kaiju Itak in Tokyo Bay. The battle is back and forth, and when the Kaiju hits their reactor, they cannot vent the radiation and end up getting bull rushed. In the impact, Duke is knocked unconscious, and thanks to the drift, the pair begins to flash back to how they met. Years earlier, Kaori was on a research vessel investigating the breach while Duke was assigned to an aircraft carrier. 
A chance proximity of the two during a kaiju attack leads Duke to rescue Kaori from her sub, at the cost of her research, which is lost in the rescue. This leads to Kaori punching Duke square in the nose before they witness a Jaeger landing to battle the kaiju. Back in the present, Kaori is able to rouse Duke momentarily, but another strike from Itak knocks him out again, and Tacit Ronin goes dark on the comms. Alright, our cover to this issue is a view out of the mouth of Itak, like where it's almost like we're sitting inside his mouth, looking out at him. We see his claws reaching out, heading right for Tacit Ronin. I look pretty much see if Tacit Ronin is kind of the head and the shoulders. I, I like this cover a lot. It's a bit more stylized in its depiction of the Jaeger than we got in the film, but as a comic, that's uh, that's acceptable. This is, if you take a look at the artwork for the uh, the episode, the episode art is based on this cover. So I, this, I really like this. This I thought was a really neat cover. Uh, going into the comic now, pages two and three make a two-page widescreen shot, and this, you'll, we'll see as we go through that this is common throughout the entire uh, story. And this really doubles down kind of on the, on the stylized look of uh, Tacit Ronin throughout the, uh, the series. Uh, it's got a really big chest, very small, kind of tapering off legs. So uh, as we see it, um, uh, Tacit Ronin tangling with ITAC here. Uh, and then on the bottom, we've got three little inset panels that are, they're like a, uh, a bichromatic, like a red and then a dark and a little bit of white, so I guess they're technically not bichromatic. And then on the bottom, we've got these three inset panels that are primarily have a red background and then kind of a, um, a monochrome foreground of Tacit Ronin and ITAC. And these remind me kind of like sometimes in an anime, especially in some older animes, you'll see a static shot of either a reaction or, you know, two uh, characters charging at each other to battle. You'll get a bit of a static shot there to uh, just emphasize the moment. That's what these really look like. And uh, they use this again throughout the series and it really, uh, it, it drives home kind of the, the more anime stylized look of this comic versus the film. And speaking of which, the color scheme itself for the, the, the non uh, inset panels or regular panels, they're kind of dark, but some somewhat realistic. So uh, the darker color panel reminds me actually a good deal of the movie, which a lot of it takes place in the dark or in, um, you know, at nighttime. So I thought that was a good choice from a color standpoint. Pages three and four is not another two page splash, but the design elements kind of go the same for both pages. All of the panels are the full width of the page. So it really looks, again, continuing that widescreen sort of uh, visual style here. There's a lot of neon yellows and dark reds used for the shots inside Tacit Ronin, which gives it this kind of sickly artificial coloring, which is a deep contrast to the more realistic coloring for the scenes that are external. Uh, like for instance, on um, page three, panel three, we see Tacit Ronin using a fusillade of missiles at close range coming out of the sides of its chest and uh, you know, back and forth combat between the Kaiju and the Jaeger. And those are colored realistically, whereas these are, like I said, very, very much taking advantage of, uh, of the color palette available to do this kind of artificial coloring. Continuing forward on page uh, five, panel three, uh, this is the first instance, and this kind of goes on continuing through the sequence here that the figure work is kind of stilted in the art. The posing is not really natural. They don't really look very fluid. 
uh, looks a little, um, uh, like I said, stilted is kind of the best word for it. And this, we will see, this is not a strong suit of the art in this story going forward. And in fact, it becomes one of the, the big um, kind of sticking points for me with this series is the, the figure art. Um, so just get, it just, it starts here. I mean, Kaori's in kind of this weird pose where she's bent at the waist and her hands are kind of flat out to the side and her chest looks way too big compared to how it looks in the other panels. So, and then Duke is, he's kind of twisting a little unnaturally and he has, you know, his, he's almost like a straight line down the, like of, of his, his waist and hips. So it's, it, it just, the human art doesn't really do much for me in this series. On uh, page six, uh, Duke loses consciousness. This is unconscious count number one. Uh, that will come back later, so uh, keep that count in mind. Then we get a sequence from pages seven through 14 where we're flashing back in the drift and we're getting Kaori and Duke's um, uh, history here, how they met. And what's interesting is that it's in a parallel, uh, parallel panel structure. So for instance, on page seven, the, we've got six panels stacked in a uh, two wide by three tall grid. And the left-hand side is Duke, and then the right-hand side is Kaori. And they kind of continue on this way. And then when there's a, on page eight, we see a kaiju, and that's a shared thing between the two of them. So that's one large panel. And then again, smaller panels representing their, their personal, um, what's happening to them individually and then the the other pan the larger panel showing their shared experiences the kaiju who is unnamed in this story this flashback kaiju looks pretty neat he he looks kind of like a mix between like an octopus and orga because of the way his his uh, limbs kind of contort around uh pretty neat we don't really get to see much of him other than attacking kaori's sub uh but but he's a neat looking kaiju for a secondary monster Turning over now to uh, page 16, panel one, back in the present, um, as we're looking up at ITAC towering over Tacit Ronin as Tacit Ronin is trying to get back up after the, the big hit. And we see the, the, the bright, bright blue internal glow on, uh, on ITAC. So the kaiju blue makes a good translation from the film uh, screen to the comic page here. And the use of the big blue, uh, bright blue coloring is very nice. Turning to page 18, as Tacit Ronin starts counterattacking back on ITAC, there's a lot of stabbing. Very much visceral stabbing with Kaiju Blue just kind of erupting out of the wounds as Tacit Ronin stabs, stabs, stabs over and over again on ITAC. That will become a running theme in this story as well, so uh, starting right here and continuing on. On page 19, uh, Duke goes unconscious again. That is unconscious count number two, so uh, keep that one in mind. And then on the last page, first panel, as we're back in the drift flashback with the unnamed kaiju in the water, we see a unnamed Jaeger being uh, airlifted in. We've got eight different helicopters carrying this thing, but we're looking up into the sun. So it's this big lens flare effect. So it's like a J.J. Abrams sort of thing. You know, hey, low-hanging fruit. I got to take that joke. Uh, but very cinematic style shot, which is it's pretty clear from reading this story all in one go that the cinematic style was the one of the obvious motivations. And here it's very plain that you can see how this shot of looking up over the kaiju to see the Jaeger being dropped in with the uh, the flare from the sun behind it, how that would play out um, on film. So you can definitely see the influence here. The uh, first issue is a good opening, uh, gives the readers a nice introduction to the characters, and it does a good job of using the drift mechanic 
to effectively fill in the backstory rather than just randomly giving us flashbacks. The drift allows a natural way in the story to do those flashbacks. It does assume you've seen the movie, but you know, Hey, I'm, I'm willing to buy that. It's a tie in book. The art suffers on the humans, but it does well on the Jaegers and the Kaiju. It's a quick read. It's very symptomatic of the modern decompressed comic, but it was a good read for a first issue. I thought, especially I thought it introduced the characters and the conflict and their backstory in a, in a nice way. And uh, I think it's a good start to the story. So let's keep on going. Let's roll right into issue number two, still reeling from the radiation leak and ITAX assault. The Jessups come to in time to slice a massive gash in the Kaiju before their backup Coyote Tango arrives. The pair fall back into the drift once again and remember how they work together to keep a bridge from collapsing during their first meeting, to being paired together by the Pan Pacific Defense Corps to undergo training to be Jaeger pilots, despite their clash of personalities and language. Back in the present, Kaori and Duke are ordered to eject, but they elect to help Coyote Tango instead, slaying ITAC, but Duke collapsing once more in the process. Our cover is kind of a symbolic image in that in the uh, foreground, we've got um, Kaori and Duke um, in uh, obviously operating um, Tacit Ronin. Then we see Tacit Ronin in the back moving in the same um, the same emotions that they are doing. Tacit Ronin looks really nice on this cover. We get him kind of from a profile. So we see the big chest and the um, protrusions, almost like wings coming out of his back and we see the blade arms. The um, the Jessups don't look as good. The faces are kind of weird on them. The posing is all right, uh, but I really like the design of this cover. So um, uh, to me, that it gets a pass. It's, it's a good cover because it's such a nice design, even if the uh, individual details on their faces and such are not really up to snuff. Inside the comic, page one, uh, kind of the same visual styles that we got from the first issue are consistent here. We get the uh, kind of neon coloring for the Kaiju Blue. We get a uh, red insert panel to show the impact. So visually, we're kind of treading on the same ground, which is uh, good for consistency here. And much to the same point, pages two and three, once again, are the big widescreen um, uh, two-page splash with the inset red panels, much as it was in the in the first issue. Now, there is kind of a big inconsistency here because we see as ITAC and Tacit Ronin crash together, Tacit Ronin clearly loses one of its arms, flying back off of it with a, a big splorch of fluid and stuff coming out of it. Um, but this is not reflected anywhere else in the story. So it's almost as if this page was done to be a cool showcase, but then it's not followed up on in the rest of the art for the remainder of this sequence. So the storytelling in the art is is not really as strong as it could be and that's uh an another thing that kind of takes me out of the story is that the art looks nice it's a really great shot but then I, I spent a couple of minutes going back and forth between this page and the rest of the story trying to see if there was something i missed about where tacit ronin's arm went but no it, it really appears that they simply have a continuity gap here that it loses an arm in this portion of the fight and then has it back for the remainder of the of the fight. So that, that was disappointing to me. And I, I, you know, one of the things about comics art is that, yeah, it has to look pretty, but it really needs to be able to tell a story. And the storytelling is just not, not quite as, as, uh, and the storytelling here is not as strong as it, it really needs to be when you've got large characters like this. It needs to be a little more consistent. 
Uh, turning over now to page four, we have tall, narrow panels running the, um, the height of the page rather than the width instead of wide ones like we saw in the previous issue. So there are some new design layouts in addition to reusing uh, the same design. So I thought that was nice from an art touch that it's uh, not just sticking to one set of uh, page layouts. They're actually experimenting a bit with that and trying some different things. On uh, page five, the first panel, which is panel one, it's kind of the main panel with the others inset into it. Um, blade slices right through iTac, and we see iTac grabbing the blade, I guess trying to, to stop it, but it cuts right up out of his chest um, and slicing right through his, um, where his, um, his sternum would be, sending a shower of ki green, yellow kaiju gore everywhere. Very gory shot. Very nice. I really like this. And uh, it looks like Itac is feeling it too. He's kind of roaring out and uh, his head kind of lolled back. Very nice panel here. This leads directly into pages six and seven, which is another two-page splash, kind of what I call the super widescreen. It's a tackle from hell uh, by Coyote Tango coming in out of absolutely nowhere and smashing right into Itac's chest. But again, the storytelling comes up. Where is Tacit Ronin? Tacit Ronin was right here in front of, of, uh, of ITAC, and we see um, Tacit Ronin is, you know, n is falling down a little bit, because uh, you can see Kaori and Duck falling down on the previous page, but he's, Tacit Ronin is nowhere here. We don't see him in the water, we don't see him to the side or behind, so I don't know where Tacit Ronin is. And further, it's, it's hard to tell because Coyote Tango is kind of obscuring Itac's chest, but it doesn't look like Itac has the wound anymore that he just got on the previous page. So again, one has to wonder, was this a, you know, piece of art that was done independent and then fit in, and the storytelling doesn't quite fit. It's a great, great image of uh, Coyote Tango, you know, just crashing in with his left shoulder into Itac and Itac kind of rearing back. In fact, it's on the uh, portion of this is on the back cover of this issue. It's really nice. But again, from a storytelling standpoint, it doesn't hold up. And it that it's starting to that really kind of bugged me on my read through this time, actually reading it all in one sitting was the little things like that, that kind of become niggling things in the back of your mind as you're reading it. On uh, page 8, Kaori and Duke both lose consciousness. Our unconscious count is up to 3. Uh, moving on, pages 9 through 11. This is a drift flashback where we see Kaori and Duke, and they're trying to save this bridge that gets knocked into by the Jaeger and the Kaiju that's fighting. And so they take Duke's boat, because <clears throat> Duke is a Navy man, and they've got people falling off the bridge, so they take his boat and they launch the lifeboats off of it and somehow that wedges itself into the pillar or uh, one of the posts under the bridge and holds it up. I'm not really sure what is going on in this sequence. I've, I've read it a couple of times. I get that they're supporting the lower leg of the bridge, mostly because Kaori comes right out and says, we need to support the lower leg of the bridge. Uh, but I'm not clear how launching the lifeboats does that or how wedging how they manage to wedge the lifeboats into the leg of the bridge or what that really does so this is this sequence really falls flat and doesn't make a lot of sense and and again a lot of that i think comes out of the art because there's the dialogue here is nothing um you know not not anything really in depth it's just kind of yelling orders and we need to do this we need to do that so the art is is it lets down the story here and makes this kind of really hard to follow 
Moving on to uh, pages 12 and 13, we're still in drift flashback mode. Um, but this makes more sense because it's with it. This is very similar to what we got in the film where we here we see Duke and Kaori because they're in training to be Jaeger pilots. So they're they're fighting with the sticks. They're going um, undergoing evaluation. So that makes sense. We understand this from the uh, from from what we know from the film. Again, that the human art is just not really great. There's a, a, a panel here on page 12 of them fighting where no one seems to be going in the right direction. Uh, it, it's, it really is let down quite a bit by the art, but here the story holds up better because we're not reliant on the art as much to tell the story. The dialogue tells the story. So th this, this part of the drift flashback sequence works much better. And this leads over to page 14 where we see it's a series of wide panels again. And on the left-hand side of the panel, we see Duke in his childhood, which is kind of in a desert and he is in a blue shade with reds and yellows in the background. And then on the right-hand side, we see Kaori, who is in kind of a red shade, and we see she's got a, uh, a kind of stereotypical Japanese garden behind her, including a, a blossoming uh, series of lotus blossoms kind of floating around. And we keep pulling in tighter and tighter, and uh, it's them as kids in the drift, because it's their memories. And they start arguing, Duke yelling, get out of here, this is mine, you can't be in here. Where? What is your? What is your problem? And Kaori yelling in Japanese, I hate you so much. You're just a stupid jerk. God, I can't stand you. And so it's, I like that it's showing their, their memories clashing together because even though that they've been tested and found to be compatible, they've got to work through their personality differences in order to drift well. So I thought that was a, a nice sequence. And I, I like the use of color. It stands out because it is so unnaturally colored. So very nice, uh, sequence. And again, you can totally see how this would be a storyboard and how this would you be used in a uh, uh, to do a um, and how this would be used to uh, you know visually lay out a film sequence. Now, as we continue here in the flashback, um, page seventeen, uh, the artwork is just is just really just letting this book down. Uh, panel three, especially Duke has this ridiculous look on his face that no human could really do. I, I just don't care for it, and and the, the posing is not good. It's yeah, it's unfortunately not the art team's strong suit to do the humans. And, and I, I don't want to keep harping on this, but it is what it is. I've got to call it as I see it. So that said, the next page, page 18, has Kaori and Duke going and punching and their fists crashing together. And all I can think of is the beginning of Rocky IV. So any book that makes me think of Rocky IV is pretty cool. Pages 19 and 20, um, as uh, now we see Coyote Tango tangling with uh, ITAC. And we see Tacit Ronin coming back. So again, it's still not clear where... Tacit Ronin is in all this. Although I will say uh, we do at least see that ITAC does have the wound. Now what's interesting here is that because a lot of this is inside of a lot of this these two pages takes place inside Tacit Ronin. So there's that that red color that we talked about having the internal shots. So the inset panels instead of being red are now blue. Almost like kind of a, a, a little bit darker than a sky blue. Kind of like a, what we call a true blue. So it's kind of an interesting choice here. I'm not, I wonder if because these, these inset shots were done in blue to differentiate them from all the red on the page, or if they were done because it's not an impact per se. One of them is ITAC lifting up, um, Kaidi Tango. The other is Tacit Ronin running towards them. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure what the choice is. It does stand out. That's the only time that they use this technique in the entire book. So it definitely stands out. It's a very colorful page. A lot of red and blue on this page. Uh, on our final page, page 21, uh, panel one, big slicing stab from, uh, 
Tacit Ronin into the right shoulder of Itak, and then they continue that slice and just completely chop his right side off in another shower of, uh, of green kaiju gore here. Um, they really rip. They just really rip Itak apart here, and uh, def he is he is done. There doesn't appear to be any way for him to come back. And just to keep things going, the last panel of the book, Duke loses consciousness again, so unconscious count is up to four. Uh, decompression. The decompression is not helping the story at all. Um, the plot keeps my interest, but this issue reads very fast, even faster than the first issue. And what that ends up, the result of that ends up being is that the, the flashbacks almost feel like an afterthought. Like they, it's, you want to get through them so you can get back to the main story. Cause that's the interesting part because the flashbacks feel kind of tacked on in some places and the art doesn't help that. The unconsciousness is becoming a bit ridiculous. Reading this when it was spread out over a series of months, I don't think I noticed it as much, but reading it all at once, it's like, wow, four, someone's been knocked unconscious four times in two issues. I mean, it, it's, it, it, it's getting to be a bit, like I said, a bit ridiculous and a bit over, overuse of this as a plot device. Uh, but you know, ultimately the action is a hook and it suits the property well to have an action heavy story here, but the cracks are starting to show on this series with this issue. And even though I, I enjoyed this, I can, you know, that this, you can really, when you're looking at it critically, you can start to see some of the problems propping up. All right, we're going to keep on rolling right into issue number three. In the drift, Duke and Kaori are together in a serene garden surrounded by flowers and greenery, while shadowy Jaegers and Kaiju lurk in the background. Duke then awakens with a start in the hospital, with Kaori sitting at his bedside. The couple are debriefed by Stacker Pentecost, and told that due to the damage they have both suffered to their nervous systems, they are no longer licensed to operate a Jaeger, and that they are both honorably discharged. While young Mako Mori informs Kaori that Coyote Tango is out of action, and that Tessit Ronin's pawn system is damaged, Pentecost tells Duke that the PPDC has to consider the Jaegers and keep them in shape to fight. The discussions are interrupted by a breaching kaiju, a large, four-armed Cat 2 named Ragnarok, which is met by the Jaeger Victory Alpha, piloted by the sisters Itu and Kaguso. The two are evenly matched, and with the nearest backup all the way out in Hong Kong, the Jessops volunteer to go once more into the fray. Pentecost says that this action will kill them both, but the Jessops accept that fate hand in hand. Alright, so the cover to this one, it shows um, Duke and Kaori in their pilot suits with their helmets touching head to head and um, Kaori with her hand on Duke's shoulder. It really shows the emotional connection between the two Jessops. I really like it. We get lotus blossoms kind of drifting in from the, the top um, and, and in front of them. Now this particular cover is actually a wraparound cover. So if you open up the full book here, uh, as we continue onto the back cover, we actually see the source of the Lotus Blossoms and we see more of Kaori's garden. So this kind of ties in with the first part of this story with Duke's kind of maybe sorta drift dream memory thing where they're in the garden together. I really like this cover. It's very low key. It's a very low-key image, all told, but it's illustrated with these high-vis colors. We get the the bright yellow on their helmets, the pink from the uh, from the lotus blossoms, the yellow in the sky in the garden. So I think it really looks nice. Not 
a not typical for the rest of them because there's no real action on it but i do like the focus on the characters and the even the character work themselves it looks okay here because you can imagine this is a very quiet scene so the posing works well uh, in that sense on page one uh, as we come in we get wavy borders on the pages and it starts with just kind of a pale um, uh, background with the floating blossoms and we eventually pull down into a close-up on Kaori's mouth. The the first instance in this story of panels that are wavy like this. We've had jagged edges but nothing wavy and soft like this. So again we're introducing new panel layouts and page design elements in each uh, issue. So I thought that was a, a nice touch. Um, pages two and three again with a kind of widescreen um, shot naturally. There's more wavy borders on the inset uh, uh, panels on the bottom. So we're continuing again that. The wavy borders suggest that maybe this isn't a drift flashback, that maybe this is a dream. Because every time we've seen a drift flashback, it's had regular borders. But, you know, they're together in it and they're having a conversation, Duke and Kaori. So it could be a drift or it could be something else. And they had, this is purposefully left ambiguous in the dialogue. Uh, a little bit later on, Duke says, Jesus, I was dreaming, drifting, I don't know. Just a weird dream, I guess. So even he's not really clear. In the background here, as I said, there are um, two Jaegers and two Kaiju that are kind of lurking as shadows. And uh, this this is really nice because they, they almost appear to be like made out of smoke. They're very indistinct, almost like a, like a charcoal sketch. And going from left to right, we have Tacit Ronin. And next to Tacit Ronin is, is clearly Knifehead. Knifehead is one of the obviously most recognizable and well-known kaiju from the series. So he's very clear. It appears to be Cherno Alpha uh, next to Knifehead, but it's hard to tell. The shape of the head reminds me of Cherno Alpha. So I think that's who it is, but I'm not 100% sure on that one. And then the last one is Otachi. He's got the uh, the two things coming off of uh, the snout of his of his, uh, of his nose, so uh, Otachi makes a cameo here as well. So I like this one. Again, you can see the different design element here, and this, this garden is obviously playing a part in the story to show uh, the connection uh, with the husband and wife team here. Uh, page 5, this is the introduction to the story of Stacker Pentecost. Uh, the character is, of course, welcome. Stacker Pentecost is awesome. But the figure work, again, it really hurts the impact because he looks so odd. His, his uh, shoulders don't really seem to be in uh, the right proportion with his neck and his head. So he looks a little too wide and the face has a lot of extra kind of lines and marks on it that kind of muddy the whole thing up. And it doesn't look particularly like uh, the character. It doesn't look like Idris Elba. So I don't know if they weren't allowed to, but again, it's, it's, it's cool that Stacker is here and I like seeing Stacker Pentecost, but Again, I again, I, and I don't mean to harp on this, but the art that really hurts this whole sequence. In fact, as we go through here, pages six through nine has Mako talking with Kaori while Stacker talks with Duke, and yeah, I mean Mako looks kind of wonky. There's, you know, it's just it's just the art is just not really good here, and the posing is not great. There is one bit I like here on uh, on page eight as Mako and Kaori are talking in the they're kind of in the background. They're in um, like a mess hall or something here and we see in the foreground a dad and a little boy and the boy is uh, is playing with a Jaeger and a Kaiju and it looks again to be a um, it looks like actually kind of might be Tacit Ronin and Otachi because uh, Tess, the, the Jaeger has the blades on the arms the curved blades like Tacit Ronin does so I think that's just a little neat touch the kid and the dad both look a little uh, you know odd because they're very strange looking 
as far as their faces and all that, but the human touch of the kid playing with the toys, I, I like that bit. Page 10 and 11 is another um, a widescreen shot. This is kind of the, the uh, debut money shot for Victory Alpha. He, Victory Alpha looks more like a conventional mecha than a lot of the other Jaegers that we've seen. He's got uh, very high, long shoulder pads, a big chest. The way that his legs are constructed are very Gundam-like. He looks, uh, I said, like I said, either like a Gundam or kind of like one of the machines from the game Virtual On, if everybody remembers that game. Uh, back in the uh, Sega Saturn era. Uh, I do want to note, I've seen a few things in the lead-up to Pacific Rim Uprising calling the Jaegers basically Gundams, and I don't really agree with that. I've never really bought into that, because to me, Gundams are no different than, in their universe, a Gundam is like the equivalent of a piece of military hardware, right? They don't have... And they're not... Well, I shouldn't say they don't have, but the way I think of a Gundam, the real robot type of genre is that the the machines don't have a personality uh, whereas a super robots the super robots did have something of a personality and character the jaegers to me always leaned more towards the super robots uh personality wise even if their aesthetic was more real robot because you know they, they don't have each one is so different they don't have common design elements to them like a lot of the gundam suits do um, so to me, I, to me, it's kind of disingenuous to call the Jaegers, well, they're basically just Gundams, because Gundams also don't fight monsters. Gundams fight other machines. Super robots fight monsters. So to me, that is a more accurate, um, uh, terminology, uh, comparison, if you will, for the Jaegers and a Gundam. But that, all that said, Victory Alpha, he looks like a Gundam. If you had told me, if you just show me a picture of him and said, Oh, what guy, what series is this guy from? I would have said a Gundam series rather than Pacific Rim. So he does, uh, he does, uh, he's got a cool look. I'll grant him that for sure. Page 12, panel one, out from behind Victory Alpha pops Ragnarok. Uh, he reminds me a lot of Goro from Mortal Kombat, mostly because he's got four arms. He's got, he's covered in muscles and he's bald. So he very much looks like uh, Goro as uh, depicted as a kaiju, which is fine. I like Goro. Now they make a point that Ragnarok is a, as a category two, uh, but a big one, which I, I thought was, was interesting because I'm like, wow, category two, should this Victory Alpha have that much trouble with it? Well, then I, I started doing a little bit of research on the timing. Remember, this takes place about three years after K-Day. And for reference, the very beginning of Pacific Rim, the um, where first time we see Gypsy Danger fighting Knifehead, Knifehead is a Cat 3. So, but that takes place in the year 2020. Three day, years after K-Day is 2016. So here we are, we're four years before Gypsy Danger fights Knifehead. And so a Cat 2 would be a big threat, because remember, one of the points of Pacific Rim was that as more and more kaiju kept breaching, they kept getting bigger and bigger gradually. So here, this being, you know, uh, four years before that, a Cat 2 being a threat, I think, is a is, is a nice fit. And definitely fit, falls in line with kind of the, uh, you know, the progression of threats that the kaiju represent in the course of the film. So it fits all kind of in the overall narrative. I thought that was a nice a nice bit of continuity. Uh, page 12, panel 5, right here at the bottom, we see Victory Alpha as one of its major weapons as a pair of energy swords, which continues kind of the super robot uh, style look, which I'm perfectly okay with. Very nice. Over on page 14, panel 1, uh, Ragnarok smashes all four of its hands into Victory Alpha's chest, and this is a red 
and, mo and monochrome panel. It's the impact panel. Really looks uh, like it hurts. So good design choice there. And uh, Victory Alpha just falling back. You can see that there's a lot of uh, force behind this strike from Ragnarok. And then things go from bad to worse as we turn over to page 18, uh, panel one, as Ragnarok gets an extra set of arms. So uh, and and so now it's a six-armed thing that's just bashing away on Victory Alpha. And in fact, as it crashes into Victory Alpha on the bottom, we get a great sound effect of crackoom, which is a really nicely done. Uh, hand, looks like it's a hand-drawn sound effect. Very cool. Uh, this leads over to the next page with uh, Victory Alpha just falling, falling, falling. It almost looks like it's in slow motion because it's four panels as it falls slowly backwards and then smashes down to the ocean and the big eruption of water around it. So Victory Alpha is kind of down for the count. This leads directly into uh, page 20, which is a full page uh, panel of the red insert panel of Ragnarok standing tall over the smoking remains of Victory Alpha. So this is kind of his money shot. And again, you can see this, how this would play out cinematically or even in an anime. You can see how this would be animated with the uh, the monster standing very high above the, uh, the, the smoking remains of the mecha down below. Uh, this leads into page uh, 21, which is our very strong cliffhanger here. It's a helpless situation all around. The only hope that they have of stopping this kaiju is the Jessups, and they are not clear to do this, and this will kill them. But they are facing the future hand in hand, and I really like that bit, so this was a good character-based cliffhanger, if not so much an action-based or danger-based cliffhanger uh, to this issue. The talky bits in the middle really slow down the story, and frankly, not only does it slow the story down, to me it hurts the overall series because the art is just not up to snuff. Um, I don't want to harp on it, like I said. I, I feel bad about continuing talking about the art, but it is what it is, and, it, and it's not the, the human bits are not up to the same level as the action bits, and that makes those parts something of a slog to get through, reading this all in one sitting. And it's, it's a very much a, a, a issue with this series, is the artwork outside of the actual Jaegers fighting kaiju aspect. Ragnarok is a suitably big bad. I like Ragnarok quite a bit. And as I said, the very strong character-based cliffhanger helps a lot, in getting you eager to pull that last issue out and finish the story. But overall, uh, despite some good bits between Ragnarok and Victory Alpha, this is a weaker issue uh, overall. All right, now as I said, we're gonna keep on rolling right into the final issue, which is issue number four. Despite Pentecost protestations, Kiori and Duke drift together and Tacit Ronin is launched against Ragnarok. Tacit Ronin's arm blades stab and slice deeply, but Ragnarok keeps coming with his hammer like this. One giant tackle from the kaiju knocks Tacit Ronin down into the ocean, knocking Duke unconscious and disabling the pawns altogether. Despite having no drift, the Jessups continue the fight, stabbing Ragnarok repeatedly in the back and impaling it through its chest. With one final declaration of their love for each other, the Jessups have Tacit Ronin slice Ragnarok in half vertically, ending the threat. But at the cost of their lives. The pair is eulogized by Pentecost, who thanks them on behalf of the human race, saying that they risked the thing they loved the most, each other. All right, so our cover shows the Jessup standing defiant in the face of Ragnarok, 
with kind of the, it looks like that the implication being that Ragnarok has ripped into the cockpit of Tacit Ronin and they are holding hands, staring back out at him. Lotus Blossoms, once again, uh, drift through the entire cover. It's a good cover. I like the close-up of Ragnarok, um, very much showing them to be, again, he looks again, kind of like Goro, uh, with the big mouthful of teeth and all that, but I like this cover and I think it's, it suits the story and it suits the characters. So I, I'm, I'm down with this cover. Page one is a word, uh, almost wordless montage until the last panel, as we see um, Kaori and Duke walking hand in hand out into uh, Tacit Ronin and then get loading, getting loaded up into the, uh, to pilot it. You can see this as a montage, kind of with the soundtrack swelling up behind it as, uh, as they go. And this leads directly into our final uh, page two and three widescreen as we've gotten in all four issues. And this one is kind of interesting because instead of showing one major scene, it's actually showing, um, it's, it's representing their lives flashing before them. We see uh, Kaori at a computer console. We see uh, Duke piloting a vessel. We see them together when they first meet with the Kaiju rising out of the bay. We see them fighting while they're training. And then we see them hooked up inside Tacit Ronin uh, getting ready to fight. So this and, and all winding around this is the Lotus Blossoms and the tree from the garden. So again, all of this ties back into uh, the drift dream that uh, that Duke had when he was unconscious and how they're connected now in this garden. That's the spot where they drift together. This, you could also probably see this as a montage, maybe just seeing these scenes from earlier in the film flashing before them as they're getting loaded up and uh, getting ready to deploy Tacit Ronin. So once more, as I said earlier, the cinematic aspect of this story is at the forefront. Page four, Tacit Ronin is being deployed and there's a numerous helicopters carrying this thing as he's getting ready to be dropped into the water. I always like that bit that they, you know, have to drop them in. It's just such a nice, realistic touch, but it's such a cool visual that I'm, I'm glad to see it uh, played out here. Page five is two big poses, basically. Panel two has Tacit Ronin making his big pose as it's getting ready to attack. And then bottom of the page, panel four, is uh, Ragnarok making his, rearing his his arms back and roaring right back at him. So getting ready to go here. Um, over on page six, we're back to the widescreen panels, the, the, the short panels that are the full width, as Tacit Ronin just stabs repeatedly over and over and over uh, into, uh, into Ragnarok. Again, this is their main tactical uh, approach here is to use their arm blades and, and fight with the close quarters uh, edged attacks. So it just keeps going here. Uh, as we move forward, uh, pages eight and nine, more wide panels in line again with the storyboard. You can really just look at these individual panels and see how this would be a storyboard. You know, close up on the Jessups, close up on uh, Ragnarok, medium shot of Tacit Ronin, medium shot of Tacit Ronin and Ragnarok together, close up of Tacit Ronin and Ragnarok's head, you know, pull back to Tacit Ronin's arm leaning back. And then this leads us to one of my favorite panels actually in the entire series, which is page nine, panel three. It looks like a GoPro shot because we are looking right down the length of Tacit Ronin's arm and we see the blade jabbing into Ragnarok's chest. So you can again see how this would be. It would look like a handheld in a place where nobody could hold a handheld camera looking down the arm of the Jaeger. So it's, it's just back and forth, back and forth, the fighting here. And it's uh, the, the, the wide panels really do a good job of showing the, the breadth and the width of the, of the combat. Pages 10 and 11, we've got one wide panel 
that takes up most of the two pages and then a smaller inset one as Ragnarok just shoulder tackles uh, Tacit Ronin down. This is not dissimilar to what Coyote Tango did to ITAC a couple of issues ago, just tackling them to the ground and knocking them into the ocean. Uh, this leads us into, once again, uh, Duke getting knocked unconscious, so our unconscious count is now at five. Five unconsciousnesses in four issues, folks. This is this is where we're at. Uh, on page 12, panel 2, they lose the pawns altogether. That seems bad, considering how important the pawns was for uh, pilots to be able to actually pilot the Jaegers without, you know, suffering massive hemorrhaging. So uh, that seems like a, um, you know, that you might want to get that looked at, but I think at this point we all know where this story is headed by the time we get here, right? So pages 14 through 16, the fight goes on. Tassel Ronan just keeps stabbing over and over and over. Um, much to, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's at this point, it's like that's the only attack that they're really going with. They don't even use the missiles that we saw previously. Um, on page 16, as we get to the bottom there, they've impaled Ragnarok through the chest from behind, and they're going in to try and finish this off. And so we get two full, wide red panels of then Duke and then Kaori screaming at the top of their lungs with blood streaming out of their nose here. Uh, I did like this callback to... Uh, again, the, the first parts of the Pacific Rim film where they talk about, or they show us that, you know, a single pilot doesn't have the ability to do this without the pawns. And uh, so the blood streaming out, they're clearly in a lot of distress, but they are going to finish their mission. And so we're finally into what I call the finale. This is pages 17 and 18. Uh, they rip the blade straight up through Ragnarok's chest, through Ragnarok's head, and leading to a, ma a massive panel on the bottom showing the two halves of Ragnarok just kind of drifting apart there. We see, actually see Ragnarok's brain, which has been sliced in half, and of course there is tons and tons of green kaiju gore everywhere, including all over Tacit Ronin. So uh, definitely the finale shot here as uh, Ragnarok has been put down in a very gruesome way. But uh, he was a bad dude, so uh, not, really, not really surprised. Now, now that we're here in the aftermath on page 19, down they go. It's obvious that this has taken its toll on the uh, on the Jessups, and they are both collapsing down, which is kind of echoed here on page 20, as this is, it's an all-white background. We see the tree with the lotus blossoms, and then both of them falling uh, with their arms spread out to the side, like they're falling back into, into nothingness together, and we see Stacker's eulogy in the captions here. Um, lotus blossoms again, being kind of the uh, the key visual element tying them together in their relationship and where they go when they drift. And finally, our last page, you know, shows the funeral with the uh, eulogy and a pair of lotus blossoms laid on each of their uh, coffins. And uh, Mako uh, sees it and she says, uh, red lotus blossoms, that's the last thing she says as she watches them as the camera clearly pulls in on one of the blossoms. This really was the only way this series was going to end, especially taking place as early as it did. And with the progression of the story of the damage done to their nervous systems and then fighting without the pawn system, the tragic ending works well for this story, even if really we kind of saw it coming. And I know I did, even when I was reading the last issue. I said, there's no way they're going to survive this. The series truly was a tale of the drift because the drift plays such an important uh, part of the story. And the concept overall is really the, the glue that holds this story together is the drift more so than anything taking place in the real world. But the redundancy in the story beats acts almost as padding 
and the weak character art brings this series down a notch. Uh, the lack of just really strong storytelling in the art and the action sequences especially, it can be confusing when you're reading it. It took me a couple of times looking through a few of these to kind of get an idea of what was happening in relation to the Jaeger and the Kaiju and, and who was going in what direction. Um, this could have been told probably in about 60 pages, more so than in about 80, which is what we're at now. And you know, the, the thing that the really frustrating thing to me is that all that said, this is still worthwhile reading if you're a Pacific Rim fan. It's not essential by any stretch. The, pro, the, the prologue comic, which is Tales from Year Zero, to me is a bit more um, essential. And I don't even, even then it's not essential. I don't like that, that, that term here. It's to me, that's a better read. This is definitely a side story. This is a Gaiden, whereas Tales from Year Zero is more tied directly to the film. But if you're a Pacific Rim fan, I think you'll enjoy this just from the story standpoint, even if the art is kind of a letdown in, in, in a few places. So it's worth checking out if you're, uh, like I said, if you like Pacific Rim, if you enjoyed the movie, Tales from the Drift is probably uh, worth checking out. Now, if you want to check it out, you can get this collected in the trade paperback form. That is currently going for $14.25 on Amazon. Or if you prefer to go digital, you can get the Kindle edition for a few bucks cheaper at $10.99, also on Amazon. So uh, check it out and uh, let me know what you think. Have any of you out there read Tales from the Drift? What do you think? Uh, did you like it? Not like it? Do you think I was too uh, too uh, harsh on it, or was I not uh, was I not harsh enough? <laughs> uh, send me an email, Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. Let me know what you think, and we'll talk about it here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Marvel's Godzilla number 17 was cover dated December 1978 and was released on or about September 5th, 1978. This comes, of course, from Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Our cover is by series artist Herb Trimpey, and it depicts quite a big change as now we see a very small Godzilla running away from a gigantic dumb dumb Duggan. What could possibly be going on here? So, very neat cover, very striking. The first time I saw it, I thought maybe it was like a weird force perspective, but as you'll find out inside, that is not the case. Our writer is Doug Mensch. Our penciler is Herb Trimpey. Our inker is Daniel Green. Letterer, Bruce Patterson. Our colorist is Ben Sean. Editor is Bob Hall. And the title of our story is Of Lizards, Great and Small. 
and our synopsis is adapted from marvel.wikia.com. Following Godzilla's rampage through Salt Lake City, the S.H.I.E.L.D. Godzilla Squad has finally recovered and have redeployed following the damage done during Godzilla's battle with the Mega Monsters. After checking in with John Hawks at his ranch, the S.H.I.E.L.D. team is joined by Dr. Takaguchi's colleague, paleontologist Gladstone Hawkins, who is opposed to killing Godzilla. Struck by inspiration, Dum Dum and the group decide to use a different method of dealing with Godzilla. Calling in the help of Dr. Henry Pym, Gabe Jones gets a large batch of his shrinking Pym particles, and using Rob Takaguchi as a lure, uses them against Godzilla. However, the monster grabs Dum Dum before they can take effect. The Shield Godzilla squad then engages on a wild goose chase to try and capture the now shrinking, rapidly shrinking Godzilla. He is finally caught by Dr. Hawkins, who uses a net on the beast once it has become the size of a regular reptile. Dum Dum informs the team that this is only phase one of the new plan. Next issue, entering not as the next conquering king, but merely as a diminutive specimen, Godzilla nevertheless fights back in New York. Well, this is definitely a change of pace issue, isn't it? Even after the two-part Western story, this one really kind of puts everything on its ear because we've got a character in Godzilla who obviously is a giant, and now he's been made into a very, very small character, and the rest of the world is gigantic to him. So very creative, very different type of story here. Let's get right into the notes. Um, on the cover, we immediately flip the script. We've talked about this through pretty much the entire run of both Godzilla and Shogun Warriors, where Trimpy uses the cover image, the gigantic nature of the heroes, or the protagonist, depending on how you want to look at it, of the comic to, you know, using small figures in the front to show the scale of the large figures uh, farther back in the comic. Well, here it's it's the other way around because now Godzilla is very small with this gigantic dum-dum Duggan looming up behind him. Godzilla barely comes up to dum-dum's knee because dum-dum is on uh, is on one knee with his foot flat and Godzilla's head is slightly above it. Uh, we see Dr. Hawkins and we see Rob Takaguchi also kind of chasing after him. We see regular trees towering above Godzilla here. And actually, one design element I really like, there is an open can of beans, an empty can of beans sitting on the ground. Um, and, and it looks like it's been opened up with an old-fashioned can opener. That amuses me way more than it probably should. I really like that as a scale element, this little can of beans that Godzilla looks like he could duck his head into and just, um, you know, hide. That's how small that our gigantic protagonist character has gotten. So very nice cover really stands out as being the one that's uh, one of the, the first one we've seen that's really opposite of the nature of the other co covers that we've had. Page one is our uh, opening splash page. We see this is kind of odd because Godzilla's actually eating leaves off of a tree. Uh, we're in western Colorado. He's continued moving uh, east after the, um, um, the events of the last couple of issues. And uh, that's just strange to see Godzilla eating leaves. We don't really see Godzilla eating in general, especially not at this point in um, the film series, that we, we really didn't see that. And him eating leaves, to me, doesn't make sense. I, I've always kind of fallen into the uh, theory that Godzilla doesn't need to eat because 
He generates all the energy he needs from the fact that his body is powered by atomic radiation and he's a giant, essentially a giant nuclear reactor. So I wouldn't think he would need energy in the form of caloric energy that he would intake from food. But I, I, what Mensch is doing here is he's showing Godzilla kind of in repose because that leads uh, into what happens uh, to, to Godzilla next. But one thing I do want to say, it's kind of interesting because... You know, this, it's a splash, but we've got the, the, you know, Godzilla King of the Monsters box. And we've got a big box that's even bigger than that Stan Lee Presents box with the title that says All the Lizards Great and Small. And so it's taking up a good, I don't know, maybe a quarter of the, and then you've got the indicia, of course, on the bottom. So a fair amount of the page is taken up. So this, even though it's a splash, it looks like it's almost in like a box that's only about two thirds of the height of the page. And because Godzilla is ducking down, to bite the leaves, it almost looks like he's ducking down so that his head is in the frame. He's like, oh, wait a minute, wait, can you see me? I'm here. Hey, guys, thanks for buying my comic. So that, that, that one kind of amused me a little. Now this goes into the second page, uh, where the first couple of panels we see Godzilla getting tired, yawning, stretching it out, and taking a nap. This is the second time in three issues that Mensch has shown Godzilla going to sleep. Um, and again, it, it's... You know, if you're going to treat Godzilla in a more animalistic way, him eating and sleeping makes sense. But it, to me, it's almost kind of contrary to the idea that a daikaiju is not an animal. A daikaiju is a monster. And the difference between a wild animal and a monster. You know, a monster, uh, I, I always consider a daikaiju to have some type of per permanence as far as personality, uh, which an animal doesn't have. An animal can have a personality, but not to the same kind of uh, anthropomorphized uh, level that we tend to think of a, of a giant monster having a personality. So, yeah, just an interesting, I thought it was funny that it was twice in two issues, or twice in two issues, excuse me. Uh, further on down the page, panel four and five, Behemoth is back. It is operational. Uh, once again, this poor thing spends more time on dock than it does deployed. Also, Hawks and Hal are back from the cowboy story, which is nice. Um, so, uh, and, and then this goes on into page three, where... Uh, there's kind of a debrief between the Cowboys and the Shield Boys. And I like Shield and the Cowboys interacting. I like that the Cowboy part is specifically put over as part of the overall story. Uh, what else, you know, we used to say, is, oh, it all counts. Uh, that was used to be kind of a Marvel thing because Marvel didn't do imaginary stories except specifically in like issues of what if. So all of their stories counted, even if it was silly or unusual, it was still part of the overall narrative. So I like that here because it really does tie in, you know, what really was kind of a, that, you know, an on, on, on its own little two part story, uh, that only had minor connective tissue to the previous story. But here it's, it's clearly tied in. And yes, there really was an adventure in the Wild West with cowboys and Godzilla supposedly being a cattle wrestler. So I, I, I appreciated that. Over on page five, we get a reappearance by uh, Rob Takaguchi, Tamara, Jimmy, Jimmy Wu, and Hugh Howards. Uh, they're out of the, they've been out of the story for a couple issues, so uh, Mensch and Trimpy reintroduce everybody on this page and get everyone up to speed. Rob is being the moody pre-teenager, and uh, normally I just chalk that up to just being Marvel Comics and uh, pre-teen angst. But, you know, given what happened with Red Ronin in Salt Lake, it's totally understandable. And, uh, you know, it, it, Mench has, uh, uh, I, I commented that I liked the way that Mench was kind of developing the character of Rob Takaguchi. And I like this here too, because he's still, um, kind of reacting in a more, what we would expect a more human response to be. So I, I like Rob being kind of uh, moody and morose here, uh, because he's dealing with a lot of crap and, you know, he had 
gotten to such levels with Red Ronin, and now that's been taken away from him, and he feels for Red Ronin because the two had a, uh, you know, kind of a, a somewhat psychic connection. And in fact, he even makes a point of that here on uh, on page six when, um, you know, they're, he's told that they're the Stark and S.H.I.E.L.D. technicians are working to put Red Ronin back together. And uh, he says, yeah, and once he's back together, you'll make sure I never combine with him again. So you, you can feel for uh, Rob a little bit, which is a lot better than it was earlier in the series where it's like, go away, Rob Takaguchi. So uh, good work uh, by Doug Mensch here to uh, kind of make the character a bit more palatable. So I, I do appreciate that as well. Page seven, panel one, as uh, uh, Professor Takaguchi and Dr. Hawkins make their entrance onto Behemoth, they land on this kind of weird... It looks almost like a, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be a VTOL or what kind of plane this is. It's its uh, got kind of a split fin in the back. It's got fixed landing gear. It's got a propeller in the rear. Um, and it, it looks like it has uh, like a very traditional cockpit up front. So I'm not sure where exactly this plane comes from because it's not a shield design specifically um, that uh, uh, Dum Dum Duggan says, who's coming down? That ain't no blasted shield craft. So how did uh, Dr. Hawkins get this fancy sci-fi airplane? That's never explained. Uh, this guy has no connection that I know of to the Avengers or the Fantastic Four. Um, you know, a simple line of, oh, I borrowed this plane from Reed Richards or something like that might have been, or this was on loan for me from, you know, from Stark Industries or something like that would have addressed this. But as it stands, it's kind of a kind of an odd, um, odd plot hole here. Down the page on panel four, we get our first good look at uh, Dr. Gladstone Hawkins. He is kind of a weird look for a Herb Trimpy character. He is kind of a almost caricature style character. He's got a really long, narrow face with a lot of lines and uh, uh, a curved nose and, you know, big hair. His, his eyes look almost um, cartoonish. Very kind of odd um, depiction of a character from Trimpy, whereas I tend to think of Trimpy's humans as all looking somewhat the same insofar as like the shape of their faces and the, you know, kind of uh, uh, level set eyes and all that. And he doesn't usually put a ton of detail on faces, but Gladstone Hawkins has quite a lot. And he, he really stands out. He, he looks like a, you know, a, a, he looks like a professor, you know, he looks like a, a paleontologist, uh, uh, you know, or as he's called here, a foremost authority on reptilian behavior patterns. He looks like someone who spends way too much time studying lizards. So even though it's, it's, it's out of the ordinary for Trimpy, I, I think he's a well-designed character. Uh, you know, one of the tropes I've always learned about animation is that you should be able to identify your characters in silhouette and you can clearly identify, uh, Gladstone Hawkins in silhouette. Continuing on to, uh, page 10, panel three, as Dum Dum is struck with inspiration on how to deal with Godzilla, he pounds the table that they're all sitting on, kind of in, I guess, the uh, the mess hall of the behemoth, because everyone's, you see people with trays of food behind him, and they've got, you know, uh, they're all just sitting around. But he pounds the, the table, and there's a, a coffee cup and a saucer that flies up when he pounds the table. Now, I really like the action here of him pounding it and the, uh, you know, having some a, a domestic sort of thing with the cup of coffee kind of being launched because of how violently Dum Dum pounds the table. But Dum Dum drinking from a cup and saucer? That doesn't read to me. That I don't I don't buy that at all. If Dum Dum's drinking coffee, and I'm okay with Dum Dum drinking coffee, I doubt he has a saucer. Even if they're in the the mess hall and they got the the you know the stack of cups right next to the stack of saucers, I don't see him as a guy grabbing 
the saucer. I just see him grabbing just the mug. That's assuming he doesn't have a tin uh, cup in his pocket or something that he's had since World War II. That that's what he uses to drink his coffee out of. To be or a thermos. That'd be he'd be like a, like a battered uh, you know thermos. That would be what I'd imagine more for Dum Dum Duggan than the saucer. So I have kind of retconned this in my mind that this is either uh, Professor Takaguchi or Doctor Hawking's tea that he has pounded and has launched their tea all over the place. Uh, because dumb, dumb, he don't care. You know, what are you going to do? He's dumb, dumb, dug and he's in charge here. So, uh, he, he violently spills someone else's drink in his bolt of inspiration. On page 11 here, we now cut to uh, New York and the laboratory of Dr. Henry Pym. And, uh, quickly introducing herself into the scene is, uh, Janet Van Dyne Pym. Was she ever Van Dyne Pym? Was she Janet Pym? Or did you say Janet Van Dyne? It's Janet. We all know who she is. Um, this really looks to be a very happy time for the couple. And I, I like that because, you know, even though, um, when I was first introduced to, uh, the characters of Hank Pym and Jenna Van Dyne, this was in the very late days of volume one of Avengers, right before Heroes Reborn. And they were, they had been, they had been divorced and they were kind of on good terms with each other, but the wasp was like an alien looking wasp monster now. So that was a little weird. But then going back and reading the early days of Avengers via the Essentials, and then I've read a lot of the Ant-Man and Wasp stuff from Tales to Astonish, you know, th there was a long time where they were a happy couple. I mean, they were uh, kind of a cutesy couple where Jan was kind of a flirt and a little airheaded sometimes. And then, you know, Dr. Pym was always like, oh, I can't pay attention to silly female stuff. I have to work in the lab. You know, this is the 60s, damn it. But we tend to think of them now as, you know, of course, of, of Hank uh, hitting her in that issue of Avengers and them being on the outs. So uh, it was really nice to see them happy and together and, you know, in, in a good place in their marriage. I like that even here in the late 70s. So I, I thought that was a really nice touch. And I didn't go and look where this happens relative to uh, the falling out. But I want to say the falling out with Hank was... Later than this, it was in the 80s, I want to say, where he was yellow jacket and kind of lost, uh, went crazy for a bit there. That was in the 80s, so that's still a few years down the line. So I, I really like this. And I do like also that they are both in, I put street clothes in my notes. I mean, Dr. Pym is wearing a suit and Janet is wearing like a button-up turtleneck long sleeve dress. It's funny, it's, it's one of these ones where it's like demure at the top because it's got all buttons all the way up from like her navel up to the turtleneck collar, and that's got long sleeves, which you see when she's coming in, it's it's the skirt portion of it is cut above the knee. So it's like, you know, she's demure, but she's, you know, doesn't want you to forget that she's, you know, super smoking hot because she's the wasp. So uh, so I like that they're not in uniform. So they are, you know, um, if you're not an Avengers fan, you would just know that Hank Pym has something to do with these, uh, you know, these things, that may, these particles that can make, uh, object shrink and grow, but you wouldn't necessarily know that he was, I guess he was Yellow Jacket at this point. This was Yellow Jacket and the Wasp. So I thought that was a nice touch. Over on page 14, after a couple of pages of ads, we get the final two panels of uh, Hank and Jan's uh, cameo. And Jan asks, what was that all about, Hank? Avengers business? And uh, he says, no, uh, you've still got a thing about lizards, right? <laughs> uh, so I thought that was funny that, you know, and, and, and Janet says, yeah, yuck. So continuing kind of her, you know, you know, kind of ditzy sort of persona that she had for a long time here that, you know, lizards are gross. And he says, uh, I think I'd better tell you about uh, him, uh, it, after dinner. So I thought that was kind of funny. Now, in panel two here, it's it's slightly miscolored because Hank's teeth 
and his eyes are all skin colored, so he looks a little odd, but he's got this kind of weird look on his face. I don't know if this is an intentional thing where he's kind of like trying to hash out how much he should tell Jan and if she'll be grossed out by it or if, if it's just Trimpy with kind of an odd face here, but it's kind of an amusing look. He's like, kind of biting back his words a little bit. Uh, right below that panel three, we get a nice loving close-up of Godzilla asleep. He looks so calm in repose. As anyone with uh, children will tell you, they might be hellions, but they're little cherubs once they're asleep. They're so sweet. And Godzilla's apparently the uh, in the uh, in the same boat. Over on page fifteen, panel five, this is kind of an interesting uh, panel insofar as again with playing with scale, because we've got in the background, you know, we've got the the Colorado Rockies because we're in Colorado, and then we see the sun. Um, you know, setting, or excuse me, rising behind it, because they say it's dawn. So we see the sun rising, and we're looking at the Rockies, and in front of the Rockies we see Godzilla, and he is very large, laying out still asleep. Now behind him we see the front deck of Behemoth, and on the very edge of the front deck of Behemoth is extremely small, like maybe a half inch tall each, uh, tiny shadowed figures of Dum Dum Duggan and Rob Takaguchi. So the use of scale here showing the scale of all of the items involved in one shot, I think is rather nice. Because, you know, obviously we know the the, the 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 obvious size of the Rockies, and then now we're seeing that compared to Godzilla and then Behemoth. And then we've got these two tiny human figures here to remind us just how large all this stuff is and how small the humans are in all this. And I think that comes in later with the events later in the issue that we've been shown how big Godzilla is here in very clear clearly defined and uh, and shown proportions, and then he's going to go the exact opposite in a few pages down the line. Now we skip over numerous pages of ads here, which uh, we'll talk about some of these in a little bit, and we get over to page uh, 21. Now panel 3 um, has Rob Takaguchi yelling, Godzilla! And, you know, there's something very bizarre about that panel to me, considering the trope of, like the false trope, I should say, of dubbed Japanese giant monster films that have people yelling the monster's name like that in a bad dubbed voice, which is, you see that a lot in um, TV shows and, and films that are making fun of dubbed Jap uh, giant monster movies, but you really do not see uh, in with with any regularity in actual Japanese giant monster movies. Uh, I mean, they even did this on the American trailer for Godzilla 2000. They made a point of putting the character yelling Godzilla in the trailer, which, so it, it's, I don't know. I mean, here it's at least in context because when they, when they do it in the, when they're making fun of it, they always have the character pointing at the monster and yelling and, and it's supposed to be ridiculous. Whereas here, Rob has his hands cupped around his mouth, and he's yelling to wake Godzilla up. Now, that in and of itself is a little bizarre as well, but, you know, they've, they've shown that that Rob has a certain affinity for Godzilla, and, then, you know, so, I, I don't know. You gotta, you kind of have to accept it. I'm still not really on board with the idea of Godzilla having anything to do with humans, but here, um, this this connection that Rob and Godzilla have going all the way back to the original Red Ronin story, you know, it, it's it's part and parcel of the ongoing storyline and narrative of the book, so you got to kind of accept it. 
Further on down the page, panel 5, Godzilla is roused and is peeking over the top of Behemoth down at Rob. It looks like he's right on top of him, basically. And I think at this point I'm going to have to simply accept that Godzilla does not, uh, um, you know, emit radiation the same way in the Marvel comic that he does in the movies because Rob Takaguchi would, would be dead at this point. He would be, he would have contracted a lethal dose of radiation just from how close he is. And I pointed this out a few times. I mean, this really came up in the last issue with the Cowboys were riding on him and stuff like that. And it's like, yep, every one of those guys is going to suffer a long, painful death. So I think I'm just going to have to table that comment and just accept that even though Godzilla is a radioactive, you know, engine of destruction, he is not emitting radiation so that he can interact with uh, humans in a close scale here without uh, them, you know, contracting uh, cancer and dying. Um, you know, I'm just going to have to move, take that and move on. Next page, panel 22, they deploy the uh, the pin gas. And uh, panel, panel 4, Godzilla gets a, he eats a huge shot of pin gas right in the mouth. It is a great, this giant uh, cloud of uh, gas pouring out of this uh um, it's basically, it's a, a sprayer, for lack of a better term. And Godzilla, with his roar, kind of getting um, overwhelmed as he's kind of reaching out. All, and his hands from the action lines are kind of shaking, so it's almost as if he's trying to bat away the gas. So I thought this was a uh, this was a really nice panel. And uh, I like that they, they really give him a huge shot of pin gas here, because you know, they, they made the point that uh, Dr. Pym is not used to using his particles on things this size, so he's not sure what the reaction's going to be, so they kind of go overboard with it. I really like that. Page 23, the first panel, Godzilla is not happy, and he delivers a a right cross right to the behemoth, and the automatopoeia is great. It's SPAM! SPAM! So you can imagine it's supposed to be that kind of spam, and not spam, 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 spam is off! Uh, that that panel just Godzilla punching the behemoth, and the sound effect of spam. That's that's a great panel. I love it. Absolutely fantastic. You can't you can't beat you can't get this kind of stuff in modern comics. Further on down the page, panel four, continuing my point earlier about Godzilla and the amount of radiation that he emits, he picks up Dum Dum Duggan with his thumb and forefinger, very daintily picks up Dum Dum Duggan. Um, why he doesn't just immediately kill him, I don't know. Um, I guess he's so confused and disoriented by the gas, I guess. But, uh, so again, uh, obviously not the, um, you know, not going to kill him by radiation. Although, in Dum Dum's case, he'd just be a life model decoy anyway, right? So he'd probably be alright. Over now on page 26, the first panel is a kind of a widescreen shot showing all of the cast except for Dum Dum. We've got Gabe Jones, Dr. Hawkins, Professor Takaguchi, Tamara, Jimmy Woo, and Rob Takaguchi. And, yeah, it's muddy. It's grungy. I don't know if it's just my, you know, my print being offset or something, maybe, but it is not a good panel. This is not Trimpy's best work by a long stretch. And yeah, I mean, you know, some of the complaints that I hear about uh, Herb Trimpy's work, this panel kind of epitomizes a lot of it, especially on all the faces and and the, uh, you know, the, the posing is fine. It's a little stiff, but nothing out of the ordinary. But the faces and stuff really don't look good. So uh, I'm hoping that this is partly the reproduction and not, you know, that, that it just wasn't that good of a page because I generally do like Herb Trimpey's art, but yeah, this was not a good, not a good panel at all. Over on the next page, uh, page 27, the first four panels, we see Godzilla shrinking around 
Dum-Dum. So we see Godzilla's hand slowly getting smaller and smaller and smaller until Dum-Dum is actually so he's about as, as tall as Godzilla. So that was a, a nice way to do it. It kind of folk, uh, uses the same technique that Trimpy used in the last couple of issues where to show the humans in large scale, we only focus on a little bit of Godzilla at a time. And here, by shrinking that same bit over and over, we get a real definite sense of the uh, the shrinking action taking place. Uh, panel 5, Dum Dum literally has Godzilla by the tail. That takes, uh, you know, the phrase of catching the tiger by the tail in a brand new light. Catch the radioactive monster by the tail. Uh, but he can't hold on to him and Godzilla slips away. Over on uh, page 30, as everyone is scrambling to uh, catch Godzilla, what's interesting here is that they have all landed out of this little craft. Everyone was on the behemoth a little while ago, and now they all appear to be on this little craft. Now, flipping back and forth, like, it's hard to tell if you know, where this is, because they appear to be on... Uh, yeah, because they're, yeah, here they go, because on page 26, they're on behemoth, because... There, you can see Dum Dum in Godzilla's hand. They're all looking up. Uh, Rob's yelling, don't hurt him, Godzilla, and uh, please don't hurt him. And, but we see uh, Howard's in the cockpit. We can see his pipe, and he goes, oh, sheesh. <laughs> Howard's is kind of funny. And um, But now, over here, out of absolutely nowhere, on page 30, they've landed on this little, looks like a little orange UFO with a shield symbol on it so they they boarded that and got down real quick i'm not really sure how that worked i missed that the first time but so i guess quick thinking or maybe they figured wait a minute if godzilla's on the on the ground everybody needs to be on the ground because obviously Dum Dum got picked up and then dropped but everyone else was on the was on deck so kind of a little continuity gaff there panel three gabe goes to grab godzilla and gets bitten in the hand and just yells yow I have to imagine that that will have negative consequences down the line. It it won't, but it seems like it should be bad in the long run for for Gabe getting bitten by a, even a admittedly tiny radioactive monster. Um, so I guess we'll keep an eye on that. I, I doubt we'll see much of anything on that further, but hey, you never know. And then finally, page thirty one, Godzilla is netted, caught with a giant net. By uh, by Dr. Hawkins, which I thought was was uh, rather a amusing. You know, it's kind of a disrespectful thing to do to Godzilla, but I think that's the whole point, that this is kind of a disrespectful treatment of the King of Monsters to be shrunk down and caught in an oversized net. And what's interesting is that from top to bottom of the page, he is still shrinking, because we see him about two-thirds of the way up the net um, as uh, Dr. Hawkins catches him, but, but then by the uh, final panel, Dr. Hawkins is walking with the net over his shoulder, and Rob is trying to reassure Godzilla. And we see that he's even gotten smaller since then, to the point now that his his tail and his dorsal fins are actually snaking through the uh, the in between the lines of the net. So Godzilla is still shrinking, so he may not be done yet. So um, you know, very, very um like I said, it's it's a disrespectful ending and kind of an uh, you know, uh, of an odd thing to Godzilla to end up being netted, but I, I really like it because it really does sell this story and that they're really going whole hog on this idea of shrinking him down. If you're going to have Godzilla in the Marvel Universe, yeah, you've already got S.H.I.E.L.D. chasing him, why not use other aspects of the Marvel Universe that are unique to this universe so you can, you know, uh, tell a different type of story. So I, I do like that. It's a fun issue overall. It, it transitions from the previous storylines. It doesn't just 
you know, it's not like a kind of a modern comic where we just move on. Next storyline, fresh starting point, brand new jumping on point, any of that. This transitions from the previous storylines and then goes in a strange new direction, which uh, in a Bronze Age book is kind of what you expect. It's n- There's not much really in the way of action. Uh, Godzilla doesn't really fight Behemoth or any other monsters, obviously. Uh, but it takes good advantage of the comic book format. This is not a story that you could easily do in live action to have Godzilla shrink down and have the humans be giant and Godzilla be small. Uh, that's just not the way Suitmation works, especially at this point in the, in the 70s. So using this format to tell this story, I really applaud. I always like when comics use the fact that they're a comic to their advantage. Take advantage of the medium that lets you do things without being concerned about budget that you couldn't do in a film or television series. I'm extremely curious to see where this goes from here. I'm I'm vaguely familiar with the next issue because I want to say that Dr. Bill Robinson covered it on an episode of Back to the Bins many, many moons ago. But I haven't actually read it because, I, like I said, I have not been reading ahead on these. So really curious to see where this goes from here and uh, to see uh, how, you know, what kind of mishaps Godzilla gets into when he's just a real small guy now. So a uh, very nice story. Really, again, a change of pace, but much more in the science fiction aspect of this series that has been kind of its bread and butter rather than the western mashup uh but overall i, I like this one i think it's uh, it was a good issue and i'm eager to see where we go from here uh elsewhere in the issue oh well i should say as normal this is collected in essential godzilla if you don't uh, want to track down the single you can find that uh essential volume it has this one in there for you now what you won't get in the essential is the bullpen bulletins page and Stan Soapbox. Now, what's interesting is a Stan Soapbox, he talks about going to Tokyo in the past, uh, in the, the previous May. And uh, this, I'll just read just a little bit of this here because I think it's it's kind of an interesting and appropriate thing to mention. He goes, Stan Soapbox, hey, remember me telling you I was going to Tokyo in May to help launch some new Marvel projects? Well, now that I'm back, I thought you'd like to know that all of Japan seems to be mad about Marvel. They're doing their own version of Spider-Man, live action, as a weekly TV series, publishing more stories of our shy little superheroes than I could count, and I wish you could see all the clever toys and games they've based on our Marvel mythos. One of these days, we'll do an article showing some of our more picturesque Japanese items as soon as we can figure out which mag to print it in. Now, of course, the live action Spider-Man show by Tawai was a, a tokusatsu henshin hero show featuring... Not only Spider-Man, but the giant robot Lepardon, aka Lepardon, depending on RL confusion. So I thought that was really cool that in an issue of Godzilla, Stan is hyping a- another Earth Destruction Directive-related topic in the live-action Spider-Man show. Now, what's also neat is that in the bulletins themselves, there is an item. Speaking of Godzilla, just when we thought we'd seen it all, Devil May Care Doug Mensch and Happy Herb Trimpey came through with a little idea that flipped our embroidered babushkas. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. It's a beautifully ironic twist of fate that is guaranteed to leave Marvel continuity buffs everywhere astonished and delighted. It's real, and it's happening in the pages of Godzilla 17 on sale right now. So get out there, Lizard Files, and nab your copy before it gets away. Be warned, however... There's a Godzilla you've never seen before lurking inside. So the bullpen Boltons are hyping this very issue of Godzilla. So I thought that was really nice to get not only a mention of Godzilla in the bullpen Boltons, but also the mention of the Spider-Man show in Stan Soapbox. So I thought that was really cool 
uh, a little bonus. Uh, and kind of a nice bonus, especially since we don't get a letter column this time out. I get the feeling this book didn't get a lot of letters. So <laughs> they probably didn't run that letter column all that often. Uh, flipping through the book, uh, we get house ads for Have a Merry Christmas Marvel style with a bunch of their, uh, um, you know, graph, um, origin, son of origins, best of Spidey, bring on the bad guys, silver surfer, a graphic novel, that sort of thing. Uh, we get our usual hodgepodge ads. Uh, we get all new goodies from Spidey's Web. This one, the one that's jumped out at me, this is a bunch of different things from uh, Heroes World, but miniatures by Corgi, which Spider-Man van, Captain America, and Marvel Comics truck, sturdy Corgi construction and quality. Every time I see Corgi vehicles, I think of my Two True Freaks alum, um, uh, Andrew Leyland, who was talking about uh, Corgi toys when he was growing up in the UK. So that always sticks out to me. Oh, continuing on, we get um, the same uh, infamous Milk Dud superhero sweepstakes with um, with Doctor Doom that we got the last time. This one I like too. Saturday morning fever. It's on the rise on NBC. Not only do we get the new Fantastic Four featuring that's right Herbie, but also down the page we also get Yogi Space Race featuring my boy Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear, and then. Jaina of the Jungle as part of the Godzilla Power Hour. And so we do get the Hanna-Barbera Godzilla and Godzuki uh, in the house, in the not house ad, in the ad for NBC Saturday morning right here in this issue of Godzilla. It's, it's laying it on thick this time out. Uh, we get a very cool house ad for Star Wars Beyond the Movie, Beyond the Galaxy, the ultimate science fantasy adventure strip produced by Archie Goodwin, Carmine Infantino, and Bob Wyacek. It's comic art history, and you are there. So uh, as we've moved beyond the adaptation of the movie and we're into the original stories, we uh, let's see here. We get uh, more hodgepodge uh, grit. You know, what happened because you were broke? Uh, the super hangups. I like these because it's got the big one of Spider-Man, but uh, the four color plastic deco plaque superheroes. But then it also has Wonder Woman, Batman and Superman. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> so it's uh, so a very cool. And then, um, you know, Lego ad on the on the uh, back cover. So all in all, I, I really like this issue. There was uh, the comic story itself was good, and then a lot of the back matter and ads were kind of appropriate and fun too. So I had a lot of fun with this one. I know I've said that word a lot, but that's kind of the feeling I get with it. It's such a ridiculous story to use pin particles to shrink Godzilla. But if again, if you're gonna be in the Marvel universe, use the Marvel universe. Don't just you know do a, a standard Godzilla story that happens to be set in the same world as the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. You know, use what's available to you. So, very cool. Very much looking forward to seeing uh, the next part of the story, which we will cover, uh, obviously, going forward on Earth Destruction Directive. So, uh, what did you guys think? Have you read this one? Uh, I know we've got some uh, Marvel Godzilla readers out there. What do you think about uh, of Lizards Great and Small? And send in your thoughts, Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. We can talk about it here on the show. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to wrap things up here on Earth Destruction Directive. Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf Editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. 
Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are f***ing kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who Podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time for a little bit of listener feedback. And yes, by the way, I do actually print all the emails out and read them. So that's not just, that's not just radio magic. That is actually, uh, the, the actual emails I'm reading. If you would like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. If, uh, listen to the outro to the show, if you want to get in touch, all the ways you can do it are in that show. So let's get right into it. Our first email comes from um, Gene Gene, the podcasting machine, a.k.a. Gene Hendricks. And Gene writes, Godzilla, planet of the sea monsters. Luke, I just listened to your episode on Godzilla versus the sea monster. This is one of those movies that I remember vividly since I had the VHS copy when I was a kid. That's probably why I always think of G as a hero more than a destructive force. Yeah, it's a bit on the silly side, but it's certainly enjoyable to watch. Now that you told me that it was originally a King Kong story, though, it makes so much more sense. I never had a problem with them waking Godzilla up with lightning, because lightning is electricity, and they use atomic energy to generate electricity, so they were connected in my kid brain. Of course, living fairly close to the Forked River nuclear power plant, as a kid, had something to do with that. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I can buy that. You know, it's it, Godzilla has a weird relationship with electricity, because sometimes it stops them, like in, in uh in Gojira, and then sometimes it doesn't, like in King Kong vs. Godzilla, and then sometimes it helps them, like it does here. So, uh, you know what, hey, we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants. It, it's one of those things, I'm in the same boat. When I discovered that um, uh, Godzilla vs. Sea Monster was written for King Kong, a lot more of it makes sense, but it's still enjoyable in its, in its current form. Gene continues, fast forward several years, and I see it in college on an MST3K rerun. My first reaction was, holy crap, I owned this as a kid! My second reaction, as with many MST3K episodes, was to laugh hysterically. It is interesting to note, as you mentioned, that they did not rip the movie apart so much as point out the goofy stuff. It's what we were all thinking when we were watching it after a certain age. They just said it. It doesn't make me dislike the movie, but I do tend to laugh more when watching it straight. And I, and I agree with that. You know, that's that's one of the things that I like the 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 Daikaiju episodes of Misty. Even including Yangari in season 11, in the, in the latest season on, on Netflix, is that, yeah, there are some movies they really tear apart, but those, they, they really don't. They, you know, it's, there, there, there are a couple of different styles of Misty episodes, and most of the monster ones, the giant monster ones, I should say, tend to fall into the humorous commentary rather than the really kind of really getting their digs in, like Hobgoblins, you know, that's one they really kind of go to town with on. Um, but yeah, it's really enjoyable. Those two, Sea Monster and Megalon in season two, are two of the absolute best. Both of them are hilarious. Unfortunately, we'll never get an official release of either of them at this point. But uh, hey, you know, if, if you know where to look, I'm sure you could at least get a chance to see them. Um, now, this next part of Gene's email is talking about Godzilla Planet of the Monsters, which I have seen. 
Uh, but if you haven't seen it, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes and, uh, because we're going to get, he gets into a little bit of spoilers here. So just forewarning, uh, you may want to skip ahead a few minutes to the next email if you don't want to be spoiled on the uh, anime Godzilla Planet of the Monsters. So into Gene's email, switching gears. I watched Planet of the Monsters this past weekend and I'm so glad that they called it part one. Not that it wouldn't have worked as a standalone movie, but it would have made the end of seven seem like the sound of music. As an aside, the end of the Dario Argento, Argento film Opera also reminds me of the sound of music for totally different ways. I wouldn't say that I loved the movie, but I enjoyed it. The plot was a very interesting take on Godzilla as the avatar of destruction, and the use of proper relativistic time distortion was great. I also love the explanation of G's powers and abilities. The animation on the people, though, seemed a little too robotic for me. The technology looks fine and Godzilla looks awesome, but the main focus is the people, and that was too close to Toy Story. Part of me hopes that they refine this for part two, and part of me wants it to be consistent. I would not recommend this for people that just want Godzilla, as he's in very little of the actual movie. This is much more of a character study in the refugees of Earth, especially Haru Sakakai. I hope that wasn't too spoily for you in case you read this email for getting a chance to see the movie, signed... Gene. And uh, Gene is, of course, the proprietor of the Hammer Strikes blog at thehammerstrikes.com. Also the host of the Hammer podcast, the Quantum Cast, and Anime Freaks, along with various other guest appearances that you can always find him on, on the Two True Freaks Network. So if you haven't heard Gene, uh, go out and find him, because Gene is a great a great podcaster, a really knowledgeable guy, really knows his stuff. Um, getting into a bit of Planet of the Monsters, I tend to agree with your assessment of the animation. A lot of modern animes, it seems, want to do this combined cell CG style. I think part of this is for uh, speed, is that they can create the certain assets up front in the CG environment and then recreate those assets uh, over and over if you've got characters that aren't going to be changing their look or changing their uniform and then apply those uh, along with the, the hand-drawn elements. So I tend to agree the humans looked a little off in that. Uh, I, I, you know, they're not, it's not really, it's not as, it's not as severe as some I have seen like that, but it, it's a little less fluid. It does work a lot better on the mecha and on the, the monsters in general. I, I do agree with that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm also in the same boat of it being part one, I think was a good choice. Uh, there's a lot of story here. There's a lot of character stuff here. And they could have done this as a, because it's about an hour and a half running time. They could have made a two-hour film and probably told the whole story. But I like that it's given a little room to breathe here. And if they're going to do it as like a series of OVAs, essentially, then uh, making it part one of, we know of at least part two coming out. I don't know if there'll be a third part. I've heard that that's the plan. Uh, but I haven't, there's no confirmation that I've seen one way or the other that's specifically going to be three movies. But I would assume it's going to be three. So giving the story a real chance to kind of spread out and breathe, I like. And, uh, yeah, I need to rewatch it. I watched it and I, and I, there were some parts of it I think I just missed because it was real late when I was watching it. So I, I, it needs a rewatch, but I think it's worth watching. If you have Netflix, it's, it's worth sitting down with. It's nothing that's going to change your life or anything. And, uh, like Gene says, it's not a monster mash. It's very much in the vein of some of the millennium films like Godzilla X Megagirus, where it's really focused. And even Godzilla X um, Mechagodzilla, uh, that's focused more on the human aspects uh, than the the monster aspects, which is um, you know kind of a it's a legitimate way to tell a giant monster story. So I, I think it was well served in the anime, uh, but uh, didn't it's, it's not a smash 'em up 
giant monster anime. Don't go in expecting that. Gene, thank you very much for writing in. Like I said, go check out Gene's stuff. Hammer Podcast, Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, and the Hammer Strikes blog. Gene is uh, one of my favorite colleagues because I can always count on him to uh, to, to be well-prepared and to uh, have an interesting take on something. And he knows uh, uh, we did an episode on his on the Hammer Podcast about the movie Excalibur, which was a lot of fun. Just something kind of off the beaten path for both of us. Um, compared to the normal comic and, uh, you know, monster stuff we normally do. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you very much, Gene. Our next email is from loyal listener, uh, Joseph Rad. And Joe writes simply with the subject of news. And Joe says, sorry, this email was short. I'm on break. Hey, man, if you, I appreciate you, uh, using some of your very precious break time to write to the show. I really do. I uh, just wanted to say that the news section of the podcast is by far the best section of the podcast, in my humble opinion. The whole podcast is lovely. You know I'm a big fan. I like the entire podcast, but the news is very underrated, and you do a great job, and it's super interesting. Keep them stomping. Joe Rad. Well, Joe, thank you very much. That I really, I really like this email because, you know, I put the news together just because... To be honest with you, I thought the beginning of the show was a little light, so I wanted to put some news out there just because I read this stuff on the various news sites that I see, and I want to pass it along. And sometimes it leads to where we can track development of certain topics, and, you know, like when we, you know, find out about the, for instance, the uh, the Rampage toys from Lenard. If you're not in the toy scene, and you're not regularly either checking the toy news blogs or, you know, like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Lenard guy because of the core toy line. So I knew that from the Lenard news, but unless you're, you know, actually following that stuff, if you're not going to the toy aisle in Walmart, you're not necessarily going to know that. So I'm, I'm glad that I can pass that along. And I really appreciate, um, you know, you, you, you saying the kind words about the news section. I do really try to comb through and as I'm preparing the notes for each episode, I, if I see something that looks interesting, I'll just grab it and throw it in the file with the notes and then put the link and I'll go follow up and, 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 um, you know, give the, give credit where it's due. So very much appreciated that. I want to put it out there once again to all the listeners. If you find any news that, uh, that you think is appropriate for instruction, please send it to me and I'll give you credit on the show because, uh, you know, we, we got to share information here. This is not, Giant monsters, yeah, they're popular now, but it's nothing like, say, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or or the Harry Potter Universe or any of that, where news of that is now immediate pop culture headlines on whatever news feed you're on. So this stuff, we got to dig a little bit and get it out there to everybody. So, Joe, thank you very much for writing in. Hope you're continuing to enjoy the show and hoping that uh, I continue to imp- uh, you know provide useful information for you in the news segment. All right, so we're coming on to the end of the show here. So the question becomes, once again, what are we covering next on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, the next time you hear Earth Destruction Directive, uh, the topic is going to be a very unusual film, a film from 1959 entitled The Manster. Now, uh, I, uh, you, may, you may have heard of this film. You may have no idea what I'm talking about, but trust me, it suits Earth Destruction Directive, and The Manster will be the topic the next time that the the show drops after this. So I hope everybody enjoyed our coverage of Tales from the Drift and uh, Marvel Godzilla of all lizards, great and small. And uh, if you have any news, feedback, comments, complaints, anything, please send them in earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com or get in touch with the show uh, through Twitter or Facebook. Thank you again for downloading and listening. And until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke 
Giaconetti as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.